Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Okay, and welcome back to the next, the latest edition of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today I have a very special guest who, of course, is a, uh, I would call him a longtime friend and colleague, Keith Butler. If you don't know Colonel Keith Butler, he is one of the Air Force's, uh, I would say, uh, one of their best officers. He's a good guy, all-around good guy. He's currently the commander of Detachment 5 out at Edwards Air Force Base, and he's doing uh, OT&E programs, uh, everything that flies that's not a fighter. Now, of course, he is a uh, B-2 guy. He was the uh, operations group commander at Whiteman. He flew F-16s, the F-117. He's he's had such a heck of a career. Uh, I won't tell you everything. We might get into it as we go throughout the podcast, but uh, welcome into the show, Keith. Welcome to NucleCast. Thanks, Adam. I am really excited to be here, and uh, I, I, congratulations on the new podcast, man. This is really exciting to see that the advocates of the nuclear enterprise are out there. They're saying what needs to be said. They're bringing people in. We're having the conversations, and, and you're at the helm of that. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, you know, it was really a perfect fit because – when you're a guy like me and you have a face for radio, podcasting is is really built for you. And so I, I'm just glad I could, uh, you know, could could have this opportunity. Well, it makes so, two of us, so we're, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so, you know, I had one question. So the B-2 is a unique aircraft that has, you know, what, what 19 in, in, uh, in the group. Uh, 20, actually. 20, 20. Okay, 20. so 20. And so it's a small, small number of aircraft, so very few that ever get to fly it. Uh, and so as you think about the B-2 and you think about this unique mission it performs, and you look back over your time in the B-2, what would you say is probably the most interesting uh, aspect of, you know, either flying the aircraft or, you know, leading the operations group? What, what is it about the B-2 that you think is just like, man, this is, this is something? Well, that's a great question. Uh, there's so much you could talk about with the B-2. Uh, I, would, I would say there's two points to that. One is what the, D, what the B-2 provides to combatant commanders and to our national leadership, right? Uh, the B-2 has four characteristics that no other aircraft in the world have, and that is range, payload, precision, and stealth. There's all kinds of aircraft that have precision, right? You can put a GPS tail kit on any bomb and drop it, and it's going to hit wherever you want it to. Uh, There's plenty of aircraft that have range. B-52s and B-1s fall into that category. You know, lots of bombs payload. Uh, Bombers do exactly that all the way back to World War II. Uh, But stealth is a little bit different. 
Now we have F-22s, F-35s, other countries are trying to do that, get in the stealth game themselves. But the B-2, Adam, is the only aircraft in the world until the B-21 comes on the scene that combines all four of those qualities. And that makes it a very, very formidable asset for our country. Uh, the second part is what you alluded to. It's a small fleet. We have small fleet dynamics. It's uh, arguably a niche weapon system, uh, but when we can carry as much weaponry as we can and we can go places that nobody else can go to do things that nobody else can do, that makes it a very formidable platform and it makes it very enticing for people to want to come into our program, both operators, maintainers, support folks, uh, and you can always say that you were part of the B2 program, and that's pretty special. Yeah, that's a good point. So now you're working test and eval of B-21, KC-46, some of these other platforms, which is also a pretty interesting opportunity. And I, I want to start the show off by asking about, you know, some of these current programs. And so as we think about the B-52, for example, so you've got a handful of programs related to the B-52. And, you know, the B-52, obviously it's the B-52 because it first was fielded in 1952. And so, you know, it's been around for 70 years. 70 One years, aircraft. can you believe? And that's, that's generations, you know, three generations of, of pilots and navigators uh, can have flown this, this potentially, you know, similar aircraft. And, you know, we're flying the Model H it's it's getting re-engined it's it's having a you know uh new new radios i think uh is there is a there's all kinds of new things coming into <laughs> these aircraft you're right uh afotech detachment five or air force operational test and evaluation center it's a mouthful but <laughs> it's organized and it's headquartered out of kirtland air force base in albuquerque new mexico and it's an organization that's pretty unique, and it reports directly to the chief of staff of the Air Force. There is nobody in between my boss, who is a one-star Brigadier General Rawls, and the chief of staff. It's designed that way to be an independent operational test and evaluation forum for new acquisitions of aircraft that come in or capabilities throughout the Air Force, and to provide a true operator's perspective on how well a new aircraft or a new weapon system, whatever it may be, really functions in an operational environment. And then we give that honest and candid feedback to the chief of staff, as well as to major commands and program offices and to contractors, and we all work together. And it's very seamless with developmental tests, your test pilot graduates, as well as the OT side of things. Now, to answer your question specifically about B-52, B-52, as you said, has been around for 70 years and has gone through some modernizations over sure. time. But those engines are the same engines that have been around forever. And those engines aren't being built. Matter of fact, the <laughs> spare parts. And matter of fact, the companies that were building their spare parts don't exist anymore. And as it is a lot of cases in the Air Force and in the Navy as well, we have active duty maintainers and contractors that are trying to fabricate parts on their own, whether that's through additive manufacturing, 3D printing, or just sheet metal shops trying to fix things that are wrong with the aircraft. And you can only do that for so long. There's only so many spare parts that you can try to rebuild. And so there is a re-engineing effort to replace every one of the engines across the entire P-52 fleet. Now, those engines have been contracted. They've been awarded. They're being designed and built as we speak. And then OT is going to take a look at those, and they're going to put those in the aircraft and then put them in an operational environment. 
where the air crew are actually flying them, actually releasing weapons, uh, and, and see how well those engines perform. How well do the air crew interact with the engine? What type of displays does it present? What type of information does it have? Uh, and you've got a very older, um, uh, industrial era, if you will, design thinking of B-52s, and you're putting a very modern, very digital, very highly fuel-efficient engine inside there. And that's just not a one-for-one -one swap. Sure, yeah. You know, whether that's a left engine versus a right engine, and how well do you maintain it? How well is it easy for the air crew to, or the maintainers to access the panels to perform maintenance? That's just one example. Uh, the B-52 is also getting the new radar. Same radar it's had mechanically scanned for years and years and years. Well, that's not going to work in today and even tomorrow's fight. So we've got to do some upgrades to that as well. Pretty exciting stuff. And then a new radio system. In total, there's actually about 16 different modernization programs that are happening for B-52, primarily based off the inability to sustain the parts that are there right now. And Afotech is happy to be part of that. So this is not your grandmother's B-52. Uh, absolutely not. It might look pretty much the same from the outside. Those engine pods are going to look a little bit different. I think there was a public release just recently about an uh, artist rendering a sketch of what that would look like. Right. Uh, but we're pretty excited to be part of that. Yes. Yeah, that'll be that's interesting because it's supposed to fly for another. How many decades are we going to after we've had all these these upgrades? I have heard as uh, as far into the. Uh, 1950, or sorry, 2050s, maybe wow. late 50s, uh, is what I've been reading recently. Wow. Another 30 years. So if you think about it, um, now the, the H model hasn't been around as long as the first right. A model yeah. was on the first flight, right? It was a couple, you know, maybe a decade or so after that. But think about how would you feel walking into, uh, you know, the Kansas City International Airport and looking at an airplane that's going to be 80 or 90 years old to go on your flight to Washington, D.C. or to L.A.? Um, most people would, would probably have thoughts about that. Uh, but the Air Force and the engineers and the companies that build our systems, uh, particularly the B-52, have done such an amazing job of over-engineering that aircraft that it has a tremendous amount of life left in it. And so I think that is, if there's ever an example of uh, value of taxpayers' investment, it's the B-52. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And that's, you know, we're seeing a lot of that in space as well where we had these satellites we expected to last like take dsp for example that oh, had absolutely 10, 10 years expected life and they're you know 40 years old and well sure and, and minuteman's the same way the icbm fleet right that thing has been around since uh what is it 19 but early 80s i think uh it, it's been i'm sorry even lower than that i think it was literally 70s oh yeah and and, and, and here we still have it yeah. Right. So, and although the Sentinel, I mean, it's, we, you can't slept that anymore. You can't do a service life expansion. It, it, it's got to get replaced. And this is the case of nuclear modernization across the enterprise. Um, it is beyond time. No question. No question. So you bring up a good point. So let's, let's shift to B-21. Sure. Um, Cause you, I mean, you'll hopefully be around to see B-21, uh, you know, fielded and, I, I am looking forward to it. Um, I have been very fortunate to have been um, uh, in my current role to be uh, have access to uh, the location where those are being built. And every time I go down there and I take a look at those aircraft, I, I'm, I literally, it gives me goosebumps to see what that aircraft is doing. The phenomenal 
professionals at Northward Grumman. The modern manufacturing techniques that they're doing, the digital aspect of it, uh, this is going to be an amazing, amazing aircraft and weapon system. It really is. So as so, we think about the B-21, and it's, you know, it'll replace, you know, it, it's supposed to go to Ellsworth, I think, and um, I forget where yes. else it's, is it going? Ellsworth, to- Dias, and Whiteman are the three operating okay. bases for the B-21. Yes. And so those three bases, as you look forward to the missions they will perform and the, the differences between the current aircraft and the B-21, and you, if you're going to, you know, for example, explain to, you know, Aunt Josephine in Des Moines why we're spending this money and what is the, the need, the true need for B-21 versus keeping the B-1s and the, the B-2s, what would be your sort of simple explanation for Aunt Josephine? No, that's that's a that's a great point, and and we need to make sure we're doing a good job of telling that story, and that's what it is is a story. Um, the, General Cotton, in his testimony recently with uh, the Senate to become uh, to get nominated to be the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, of which that was successful, um, he had a great point, and he said, "Hey, look, it's it's cheaper to win an arms race than it is to lose a war." Absolutely. <laughs> and it's it's a simple statement, and it's something that I think our country uh, needs to be reminded of, even us in the military, frankly. And so it's a pay-me-now-or pay-me-later conversation. And our adversaries have watched us. All, Of course, the Soviet Union has watched us since the start of World War II and in the Cold War. China's doing the same thing now, is our, as is our other adversaries. Um, and they're not making it any easier. Their weapon systems are getting better. Their defense systems are becoming great. Some of them already are. We always have to have the ability to go out and reach those targets. And that's what the B-21 provides. Here's an interesting point, Adam, is that right now our bomber fleet in the United States, long-range strike, crossing oceans with heavy payloads of precision weapons to go meet the combatant commander's needs, or in the case of nuclear, the national command authority, the president, right? Only 10% of our bomber fleet today is comprised of stealth aircraft. 10%. Mm. Everything else that we've got has to be able to operate in either a permissive environment where there's a low threat of being shot down or a reasonable threat that has to be mitigated through other means, right? Uh, Or you've got to be able to do standoff. And when you do standoff, you increase the cost. And there's a prime and there's a place for standoff weapons. Sure. The joint standoff attack with JASM, and we're talking about hypersonics now, and the air-launched cruise missile. Those are all quivers in, or arrows in your quiver for for being a combat operator and, and providing those capabilities. But you cannot beat the scale, the size, and the scope of gravity weapons. Yeah, flying okay. over an enemy's target with either 500, 2,000, 5,000 pound bombs, or in the case of uh, the B-2 for the MOP, the Massive Ordnance Penetrator, which is our 30,000 pound weapon, you've got to be able to get over the enemy's target. That has been the case for the majority <laughs> of human history. Um, when you want to stand off and you want to shoot something farther, there is a tremendous costs associated with that. And if you want to do that at scale, it does become cost prohibitive. The Air Force Association and the Mitchell Institute do a wonderful job of, of highlighting this need for our nation's uh, capabilities. Uh, 
So the B-21 is absolutely critical to provide those combatant commanders with options, options in both capability and in the case of B-21 versus B-2, capacity. As you said earlier, we have only 20 of these aircraft, the B-2. The buy that we're looking at for B-21, we as a country are in the 100, 120, 140, depending on who you talk to. And those will change over time, of course. Uh, but the Air Force Global Strike Command, General Cotton, uh, the Eighth Air Force Commander, General Jabera, have been very, very adamant on that baseline number that we need to provide the capabilities and the capacities that we just aren't able to provide with B-2. We've got to be able to do that to keep those uh, adversaries at risk. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Yeah, you, you brought up a good point that, you know, it's something that, I, you know, if you read some of the more recent literature coming out with the Nuclear Posture Review and the NSS and the NDS coming out recently, there's this discussion that, you know, we want to avoid an arms race because both the Chinese are expanding their arsenal, the Russians have modernized their arsenal, and so therefore, you know, there are those who would say, well, we have to be careful not to demonstrate that we want to engage in an arms race. But as, as you point out, and, and this is, you know, it's very true that, you know, it's easier, it's cheaper. It's certainly much, much uh, more effective for protecting the United States and for avoiding the loss of life to engage in an arms race as opposed to a war. And if we look at modernization, you know, both modernization and O&M is projected over the next three decades to be about one to 1.2 trillion, <laughs> roughly 50 to 75 billion a year. And then if we look at, you know, uh, about five to seven years of time just in Iraq, the U.S. or Iraq and Afghanistan, if we look at, you know, up to like, say, 2014-ish, those conflicts, we spent, you know, three to six trillion dollars. And those were just, you know, small scale, unconventional conflicts that had, were nothing on the scope of trying to deal with Russia or China and actually fight them. So, you know, it's, it's pretty, you know, indicative of how true that statement is that it's much cheaper to engage Abs in an arms Absolutely. race as opposed to a conflict. But yet there are some, particularly in the disarmament community, who fear arms racing, but I don't think they really quite understand the implications of the second and third order effects of 
I think you're right, Adam. I do. I, there's, um, you know, in order to have a race, you kind of have to have more than one person unless you're racing yourself, I suppose, as you described, China and Russia are already there. They're already modernizing the amount of not just weapons, but weapons systems, both in all the domains of air, sea, uh, surface, of course, space and cyber as well, and how they are um, modernizing and growing their arsenals and the ability to threaten the needs and the interests of the United States and the Western world, if you will. Um, we either we either match them or we allow them to continue to grow, become on par or surpass what American capabilities are. And I hope, at least while I'm alive and for my kids, that we as a country choose to not let that happen. We've got to be able to defend what is a way of life. It is a Western ideal, individual freedom. We're talking about the very basic, the, the first principles of you, if you will, of why we do what we do. Uh, and what is the cost associated with it? And one of your previous guests, and I think you talked about it, and it was called that sovereignty insurance. Uh, I, yeah. I thought that was a wonderful way to describe um, relative to everything else that we do in our country, a, a sovereignty insurance attacks, if you will, and be able to break that down per person. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. Yeah, I actually took the nuclear budget. And I looked at the number of taxpayers in the U.S., so not the total population, because it goes way down. But if you just look at the number of people who pay federal income taxes, uh, I looked at it, and it was about $180 per person is spent on you know, nuclear deterrence. And so it, it's... You know, if you think about what you spend, like the average American spends more than $10,000 a year for their family's medical insurance. You know, automobile insurance is about $1,000 to $2,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And so these other forms of insurance that we all life insurance, we, we all sort of buy these insurances. Well, I think, you know, sovereignty insurance is something that, it's it's worth the money because it buys us the lifestyle. And the other point I've tried to get across is that nuclear weapons and, the, and deterrence allow you, if you really look at it over time, they allow you to spend less on your conventional military capabilities. And so when you spend less you there, yes. you then reallocate those resources. And in many respects, we've chosen to spend it on you know, various social welfare programs, federally subsidized student, all these other things. But part of it also goes to, you know, to the private economy that develops these wonderful things called iPhones and smartphones. And, you know, we all, I mean, I think I'm, I've got four or five laptops, you know, because they're cost effective and affordable things that you can have. And so we've benefited greatly as a society because we can reallocate resources. Absolutely. And you just brought up a whole bunch of things I'd love to unpack. And I'll tell you, one of them is uh, you reminded me of, uh, I went to the Air Force Association conference recently in that National Harbor back in September. Uh, Admiral Richard was there, mm-hmm. uh, the outgoing strategic command commander. And he, he uh, and you can't, you can't, listen to him and not walk away with something that you didn't know before. He, he's just that kind of a person. And, and he, and he has said this in other forums as well. And he said, look, he says, every O plan 
every operations plan that we have for our country and the capabilities associated with that, they rest on the assumption that strategic and nuclear deterrence works. And the moment that strategic deterrence and nuclear deterrence doesn't work, everything else, everything else doesn't matter. Yeah. Because the scope and the scale and the effects of nuclear weapons, uh, the destructive power that they have is an absolute bedrock upon which our country provides its nuclear and our strategic security across the world. Um, he, he also said that, you know, contests among nuclear powers, they quickly become more than the conflict at a third party level when you're dealing with nuclear powers or they have the potential, meaning sure. when we have uh, the Korean War or the Vietnam War or modernly what's happening in the Ukraine right now, having two nuclear superpowers in direct conflict with each other is an incredibly dangerous thing, incredibly dangerous. And we have to be able to provide that backstop of nuclear deterrence to say there is a limit at which if you exceed a threshold, it will be in the when we're in ways that the world has never seen before. Now, now here's the here's the counters of that. Um, there are people that subscribe to a principle, and I'm not certainly not advocating for this, but you know, one nuclear detonation is the end of the world. Well, all, you can go out to the deserts of Nevada and see all of the nuclear testing that we did as a country, and all the ones that Russia did during the Cold War, um, and and that isn't necessarily true. However, there is a level of warfare. That conventional weapons, when you're talking about chemical reactions of explosives of a weapon or a bomb versus a atomic reaction of a nuclear sure. weapon, that's a different ball game. And we've got to be able to make sure that we provide that so that we don't give the opportunity of the enemy to say, you know what? We think today's the day. We think today is the day that we can actually release a nuclear weapon to achieve our national aims of what we want to do for victory. And we think we're going to get away with it. The day that yeah. they start to feel that way about nuclear deterrence for America is a day that I don't ever want to see. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, the, the thing about deterrence is that, you know, it, it exists in the minds of the adversary. And so you constantly have to, to be shaping their risk-reward calculation. And you never want that risk-reward calculation to lean reward. You always want it to be focused on risk. And uh, un unsupportable costs. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's a, there's a part of this too, for your, for your allies, allies and your partners, there's a deterrence piece. And then there's the assurance piece as well. We talk about non-proliferation. And I think this is one part where we may actually agree with some of the uh, disarmament crowd. Hey, n nobody wants these things to proliferate. And so what we as a country provide, the United States, is that nuclear umbrella, that extended deterrence for partners and allies to make sure that they don't have to go out and start their own nuclear weapons programs. Because we as a country provide that for them, either through NATO or through South Korea, all the different agreements that we have. We want that. Now, deterring somebody is different than assuring somebody. You deter somebody to go, hey, look, that cost is just not worth it. But you have to assure your allies that, hey, should that war come to your front yard, America is going to be there. America's got your back and is going to protect you. That is a much higher threshold, arguably, than what it is to deter somebody from a cost imposition strategy. So it's a little bit more complicated than just saying, hey, we've got to take care of our adversaries. We've got to take care of our allies and partners as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I've had a burning question 
that it's something I've looked at. I've written a few articles, but I'm I'm curious on on your perspective. And this is on uh, the future of stealth because both the Russians, the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese IADS network, their their you know terrestrial radar networks are are pretty significant. The bands they operate on. Um, it's, it, I've wondered, and there's been sort of a debate back and forth on, will stealth remain relevant in the years ahead? Is it stealth? Is it speed? Or is it combination? You know, you know hypersonics are about speed and maneuverability. Stealth is stealth. Um, so what, what can you say? I mean, much of this, this debate is certainly uh, behind closed doors, but, but what can you say as somebody who's looking at you know, the future relevance of stealth. Yeah. And, and Adam, you're right uh, to get into the specifics about stealth and survivability is absolutely behind a closed door type conversation. Right. But, but I'll, I'll just, I'll describe it this way. I don't know. And I would argue that, and I would love to hear somebody that could prove me wrong. I don't know of any technology in the history of mankind. When we have found a, a way to, cause harm or hurt or kill somebody or something that once it came onto the scene ever went away. Mm. Yeah. We still have arrows. We've had arrows and bows and arrows for thousands of years. Uh, we've had gunpowder, gunpowder still around explosive chemical weapons, biological weapons. As soon as some person thinks of a way to get to the enemy, to close that gap and then do what they're, you know, administer their will on the enemy. I don't know of anything that's ever went, you know what? We don't need that anymore. We're good. We're, we're going to, no one's going to use that anymore. That one's off the table. Nukes are a great example. Stealth is the same way. Uh, we, America, uh, invented stealth technology and we continue to demand that because again, we've got to be able to go to a place where no one else can go to do things no one else can do. And we've got to take the fight to the enemy. We want to continue to keep it out a way game for us as America. In order to do that, we have to be able to penetrate into our nation's adversaries to go release those weapons to have the right effect. I don't know how you do that without stealth. Now, there, stealth is not always the same. Sure. And that's, uh, it's, it's how the F-35 or the, so the F-22 versus the 117 versus the B-2, B-21. Um, there, there are characteristics that are similar. But how those are designed, how they are built, and how they are employed um, are different but complementary with each other to ensure that we always maintain that access. Uh, to get into the specifics, of course, it becomes a classified sure. conversation. And as well, it should, right? It's yeah. not that we're, uh, uh, we're going to go share this stuff. We worked really hard with blood, sweat, and tears to create this advantage. And we're, we're not going to give it up. Absolutely not. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I never see a day where stealth isn't going to be part of an option on the table for a combatant commander or for the president. Now, does everything have to be stealth? Absolutely not. No way. Because at some point you need to be able to fight in a permissive environment and that doesn't require stealth, which means you can have your cost of your weapon or your weapon system come down dramatically because of that. Now what that balance looks like, well, those are where policy discussions take place and intelligence analysis and capability gaps and future acquisition programs to try to figure out what type of military force we need in the future to continue to win America's wars. Tough conversation. 
So we, you know, this has been a great conversation, but unfortunately, we're we're near the end of our time. But I wanted to ask one last question. Of course, and that's as you look to the future, and if you were to prioritize, you know, modernization and prioritize systems and capabilities and. And, you know, you have the ability to say, this is number one, this is number two, this is number three. What would you, how would you prioritize? What would you prioritize? And why would you prioritize it? Uh, oh, boy. If I was, if I was king for a day, or if I was in charge of policy or acquisitions or funding, <laughs> as it were in America, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I would... I would love to have the conversations with folks to have a better understanding of what it means to have uh, preventative maintenance versus deferred maintenance. It always costs more money when your car breaks to get it fixed at a repair shop than it does to, hey, I need to get a new oil change versus getting a new engine. Right. And part of what we find ourselves in now with nuclear modernization and the money and the descriptions that you had we talked about earlier um, is a result of deferred maintenance for many, many years. And there's reasons for it. I'm not saying they're all bad necessarily, but those that's where we are as a country. Whereas when you are doing preventative maintenance and you're putting a new coat of paint on your house every five or 10 years, instead of having to redo the siding of your house uh, because you let it linger and it just got too bad. Now you got termites and there's rot and whatever it may be. Um, it's always going to cost more on the out years. And so for, for modernization, I think I would love to have that stable funding with an understanding of that constant, not fast, but constant Remodernization, reacquisition, new capabilities. It's always there. It's always steady. And we don't have that sine wave of starts and stops. I think that's what I would change if I was in charge. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That was one I didn't expect, but I, but I have, you know, as I think about it, I have to agree with you. It is, and it's awesome. been a big challenge, particularly in the nuclear enterprise. So it certainly I has. Tell you what, it certainly has. I, unfortunately, we're out of time, but man, this was, we were just getting started. You know what this means though, don't you? <laughs> this means you'll have to come back. That's, Adam, that's I a would great love thing. to come back. <laughs> it's a great thing about having good people on the show is you, you, you rarely run out of things to talk about and you have plenty to talk about the next time. Absolutely. And uh, again, Adam, thank you to what you do for ANWA, for what you've done for the entirety of your career. Uh, you are so important to what we do as a nuclear community. Um, there are so many people that this may only be their one touch point. Uh, and what you do for the military, what you do for academia, what you do for industry. Uh, thank you for being on our side. Uh, we need it. So please well, keep up the good fight. Appreciate the kind words. Well, folks, it is, of course, the end of the show, and we have had a great show with Colonel Keith Butler, whom you will be hearing more from in the years ahead. He's got big news. We're not going to say anything now, but uh, you can follow him on LinkedIn. Uh, he's, of course, uh, uh, he's at Afotech now, so he'll, he'll be around the Air Force for some time to come. Uh, so thanks, Keith, for, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. 
All right, everybody. Well, thanks for joining us again, and stay tuned for our next episode of Nuclecast, brought to you, of course, by the Anwa Deterrence Center.